there's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with the personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. If you went on a road trip and you didn't stop for a Big Mac or drop a crispy fry between the car seats or use your McDonald's bag as a placemat, then that wasn't a road trip. It was just a really long drive. At participating McDonald's. It was August of 1937. Lewis Hammond and his wife were road tripping through the southern United States. With the windows down and a breeze in their hair, they passed a sign welcoming them to Edenton, North Carolina. Lewis was feeling antsy and needed to stretch, so he pulled over under a shaded canopy of trees off Highway 17. While his wife stayed in the car bopping along to the radio, Lewis stepped into the woods to search for hickory nuts. As he strolled into the brush, Lewis nearly tripped over something large lying in the dirt. It was a smooth stone with curved edges, and it had faded text carved into its surface. Unable to make heads or tails of the inscription, Lewis did what anyone might do. He hoisted the 21-pound stone and brought it back to show his wife. After a few moments of trying to decipher the text, Lewis gave up and tossed it into the trunk of his car. And that's where the stone remained for the next three months, forgotten as nothing more than an interesting keepsake. Then, on November 8th, 1937, as the couple was driving through Atlanta, Georgia, they passed Emory University. Lewis decided to make a pit stop. Maybe the university's professors would be able to make sense of the stone's engravings. Hammond watched as the professors worked together, trying to decipher what the stone's text could mean. In due time, the stone would reveal one of America's greatest mysteries. It was written documentation of the untold story of the lost Roanoke colony. Welcome to Unexplained Mysteries, a ParCast original. I'm your host, Molly. And I'm your host, Richard. In life, there's so much we don't know. But in this show, we don't take we don't know for an answer. Every Thursday, we investigate the greatest mysteries of history and life on Earth. You can find episodes of Unexplained Mysteries and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Unexplained Mysteries for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Unexplained Mysteries in the search bar. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. 
Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. This is our second episode on the Lost Roanoke Colony. Last week, we examined the history of the settlement, starting at its founding in 1587. It was established as a convenient base for British privateering, but the tiny colony had no shortage of hardships. Lack of food, treacherous storms, and hostile relationships with natives. Then, in 1590, when ships arrived carrying emergency supplies for the settlers, they found the camp was abandoned. It was as if the settlers had vanished into thin air. This week, we'll explore some of the most popular theories surrounding the colonists' disappearance. First, we'll examine whether they might have been wiped out by disease, famine, drought, or even cannibalism. Then, we'll look into the possibility that they may have assimilated with the local natives. Finally, we'll scrutinize Lewis Hammond's remarkable find, the first dare stone. It may be evidence that the colonists migrated inland and further north. Maybe they didn't disappear at all. In August of 1590, the governor of the Roanoke Colony, John White, returned to the settlement after nearly three years away. He was looking forward to seeing his daughter, son-in-law, and three-year-old granddaughter again. But when White arrived, he was greeted by nothing more than a pit in his stomach. The settlers and his family were nowhere to be found. But they did leave behind a few clues. Upon arriving at the village, White's crew spotted a tree with three letters carved into its trunk, C-R-O. White suspected it was a secret sign. He had a discussion with the settlers before leaving for England. If they moved to safer, more inhabitable lands, they should leave a message as to where they went. As White and the others explored the abandoned settlement, they found that the homes had been carefully dismantled. It was as if they had taken them down to rebuild them in another location. But their guns and weapons had been left behind, leading White to believe that they hadn't experienced any immediate threat. And on a post of a defensive wall, one that was built during White's absence, was another clue, an engraving that read, Croatoan. But White had said to carve a cross over their new location if they left in distress. There was no cross. The only sign of distress was this new wall, likely built to defend the colony from what one could only assume were dangerous enemies. White believed the colonists moved north to seek refuge with their allies, the Croatoan tribe. But he had been gone for three years without any form of communication. Circumstances could have changed. Regardless, he left the island that day with the intention of returning shortly to explore Croatoan Island, 50 miles south of Roanoke. But White never got the chance. It wasn't until two decades later, when the Jamestown colony settled in modern-day Virginia, that search parties were sent looking for the Roanoke settlers, and they found no trace of the Roanoke colonists. Which brings us to our first theory— that the settlers never resettled and instead were wiped out by other forces like famine, disease, drought, or even cannibalism. 
There are a few perils that the Roanoke colonists likely found unavoidable in their new habitat. Poor sanitation likely led to cases of scurvy, typhoid fever, even dysentery, all of which can be deadly without proper medication. There's also documentation that the settlers were never taught how to fish, grow crops, or properly tend to their meat, which would have made them prone to foodborne illnesses. But none of these should have resulted in the death of over 100 settlers all at once. In 1992, the National Park Service funded a project to better understand the environmental conditions for early settlements like Jamestown and Roanoke. They partnered with climatologist David W. Staley. Staley collected core samples from old bald cypress trees along the border between Virginia and North Carolina. These trunk samples were from trees that were alive between 1185 and 1984. By measuring the size of each tree ring, Staley was able to get a reasonably accurate environmental reading he could estimate the average rainfall and temperatures of each year within that period. What he found was that the Roanoke colony lived during one of the most extraordinary droughts in the past 800 years. So while Roanoke colonists have been criticized for their poor planning and survival skills, it's fair to say that anyone would have had a hard time surviving. And according to Staley, the area was still suffering from drought in 1607, when Jamestown colonists settled just north of the Virginia border, 17 years after White had discovered the Roanoke colony's disappearance. Unlike the Roanoke colonists, Jamestown settlers kept good records of their experience in America. Granted, there's no way of knowing whether Roanoke records disappeared along with their authors, but given what we know now, Jamestown is a useful point of reference to help us better understand Roanoke. And between 1609 and 1610, Jamestown nearly failed, just like Roanoke. Nearly half of the 350 Jamestown colonists died in that one year. Neither they nor the local native tribes were able to grow a sufficient amount of crops due to the drought. That didn't stop new colonists from arriving, though. In fact, one of the only reasons that Jamestown survived was because of a constant influx of new settlers. But more than 75% of those who came to Jamestown by 1625 died. In total, 4,800 men, women, and children. Which means that the Roanoke colony, with only around 100 colonists and no new influx of settlers, may have suffered similar circumstances. But it wasn't all starvation and dehydration. Colonists were also likely to die of disease. There's plenty of documentation that the native tribes fell victim to diseases that the colonists brought with them from Europe, like influenza and smallpox. But just as the settlers were delivering disease, they were also likely encountering new viruses and infections as well. Down in the muggy swamplands of North Carolina, the settlers would have come into contact with a high volume of mosquitoes that may have carried disease. Malaria, for instance, was common in Jamestown. Some archaeologists, including Georgia's Mercer University professor, Dr. Eric Klingelhofer, believes the settlers may have even caught the plague. 
And the major symptoms would have been things like sleeplessness, apathy, and delirium, which can cause confusion, disorientation, and hallucinations. And since the disease is passed from rat to flea to human, it's likely those living in close proximity could have all been infected. So it's not out of the question that madness could have driven the settlers to leave the colony on a whim. Either way, odds are high that the Roanoke settlers turned to desperate measures during desperate times. With the certainty of food becoming scarce and the possibility of a disease plaguing their minds, the colonists might even have resorted to cannibalism. After all, it happened at Jamestown. In 2013, the Smithsonian Museum of Natural History announced a startling new discovery. They claim to uncover not one, but five different written accounts from Jamestown colonists that made gruesome references to eating human flesh. But what was more revelatory was the recovered skull and shin bone of a 14-year-old girl. Her remains were buried three feet below the earth, in a cellar at one of the Jamestown forts. Doug Owsley, head of physical anthropology at the museum, was the first to examine her remains. Owsley found that the girl had blade marks along the side of her skull, blade marks made after she died. It was something he had seen before and consistent with cannibalism. Owsley suggested that the colonists cut into the muscles on the side of her face to consume as sustenance. But Owsley also found another strange clue. The girl's body had elevated levels of nitrogen, meaning she ate a lot of protein. And protein was extremely scarce in the Jamestown region, meaning that it likely came from consuming human meat. Of course, cannibalism at Jamestown does not mean that the same happened at Roanoke, but it does make for a higher likelihood. But the biggest problem with the theory that the colonists died of any natural causes, be it cannibalism, disease, or famine, is that there's no archaeological evidence for any of it. There should be some remnants of medicines, decomposing bodies, or written documentation. 115 bodies don't just disappear. So where did they go? Coming up, new archaeological evidence may provide answers for the Croatoan carvings. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only, exclusions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? 
Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDIC. Now, back to the story. When Governor John White returned to the Roanoke settlement after a trip to England in 1590, he found no one, living or dead. Only the word Croatoan was found carved into a post. Once White saw the engraving, the location of the colonists seemed obvious. Croatoan Island was about 50 miles to the south. They must have moved. White knew that the settlers had built good relations with the Croatoan tribe who lived there. But no one could find any other evidence besides the one word. Sir Walter Raleigh, head of operations for the Roanoke Colony, sent an expedition back to America a decade after John White, but the crew returned empty-handed. Later, the colonists at Jamestown were instructed to search for the lost settlers. They, too, found nothing tangible. But tides shifted for White's theory in 1993 when Hurricane Emily hit the Outer Banks of North Carolina. Researchers learned that maybe everyone had been looking in the wrong place. And White's theory just so happens to be our second theory, that the Roanoke colonists moved to modern-day Hatteras Island and assimilated with the Croatoan tribe. In 1993, Mother Nature offered up clues. A hurricane unearthed masses of old pottery near a Croatoan village. And the discovery of these relics motivated a team of archaeologists to revisit the area. They hoped that maybe they would find answers about the lost colony's whereabouts, and answers started to arrive in 1998. We're not exactly sure why it took five years for the search to begin, but we do know that one of the most significant finds was a 10-carat gold ring with an engraving of a prancing horse. The object dated back to the 1500s, and archaeologists were confident it had been worn by one of the English settlers. An artifact like that probably never parted from its owner. It would have been too sentimental to trade. Meaning, the colonists might have once stood on those grounds in Hatteras, or even permanently relocated to the area. After the discovery of the ring, Archaeologist Mark Horton from Britain's University of Bristol was hungry to find more evidence. He began spearheading future excavations on the island. His years-long search inspired volunteer excavators Margaret and Scott Dawson to start the Croatoan Archaeological Society. Ever since 2009, the couple has coordinated annual digs on Hatteras Island with the help of local volunteers under Horton's supervision. During one of their excavations in July of 2015, the Dawson search produced some astounding artifacts. Materials not only from Native American tribes, but also Europeans. They discovered Native American pottery, a 16th century English gun, a lightweight English sword, and copper eyelets, which may have been used as buttons on English clothing. Of course, it's possible that these could have been from other privateers who had explored the island, but they likely wouldn't have left weapons behind. Horton admits that many of the items they found were good for trade, so settlers may never have stepped foot on the land. They could have traded the guns to Croatoans who possibly lost them in a different hurricane. 
But there were also keepsakes, things settlers wouldn't likely part with. The team also uncovered a piece of slate that Horton presumed was used as some form of writing material and a lead pencil. Upon closer examination, the tablet appeared to have a small letter M on one of the bottom corners. Horton claimed it was owned by somebody who could read or write. It wasn't useful for trade and was owned by an educated European. This was rather rare for the times. In fact, Horton believes that the slate may have been used by John White himself. White was known to use similar materials when painting and drawing the local native people. So perhaps that M was actually an upside-down W. And maybe the tablet was left behind by White during the first expedition, long before the colonists disappeared. Or perhaps Eleanor White Dare took her father's slate with her as a keepsake. Aside from keepsakes and relics, there were other signs that the Roanoke colonists may have become intertwined with the Croatoan people. A collection of various animal bones, including deer, fish, and birds, had been excavated from ancient trash heaps. This information indicated a drastic shift in the tribe's diet. Being so close to water, the Croatoans predominantly ate fish and turtles. But at some point after European first contact, they began eating more land animals, meaning they were hunting, a task that was easiest with guns, perhaps ones previously used by the Roanoke colonists. One of the most convincing historical accounts to support this theory was given by John Lawson, an English explorer who came to Hatteras Island in 1701. Lawson wrote that the Croatoans admitted that many of their ancestors were white, the truth of which is confirmed by gray eyes being found frequently amongst the Croatoans and no other natives. While a pair of gray eyes sounds uniquely European, it hardly confirms that the Roanoke colony as a whole assimilated with the Croatoan tribe. It's possible that the two groups procreated but never settled together. Brett Riggs, another archaeologist out of the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, has his doubts about this theory as well. He doesn't believe that the artifacts found during Horton's digs prove assimilation. In fact, he thinks that the Native Americans simply claimed what was left behind at the abandoned settlement. Horton himself even admits that the artifacts he and his teams have found don't have conclusive origins. Much of what they uncovered was mixed in with other objects dating well into the 17th century, a hundred years after the Roanoke colonists had disappeared. But this seemed curious to Horton. He started to wonder if the objects had been left behind with the Croatoan tribe for safekeeping, possibly when they split off in search of more suitable long-term locations. In 2011, that theory gained traction with new evidence from a rather unassuming source. A professor of economics managed to unlock a hidden message that revealed the colonists might have moved inland. Brent Lane, professor at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, had a fascination with the lost colony since childhood. He also happened to be the proud owner of one of John White's original watercolor maps. 
He had noticed two small patches on the piece that he owned that looked fainter than the rest of the chart. For much of his life, he didn't think anything of it. Until 2011, when he got in touch with the British Museum to learn more about the map's distinctive features. At the museum, they placed the map on a light box. What they found was remarkable. These diluted patches actually showed hidden markings, a form of invisible ink, which may have been made with acid from something like lemon juice or urine, highlighted a hidden fort, located only 50 miles inland from Roanoke Island. Enthusiasts dubbed the fort Site X. This information seemed to corroborate the colonists' original plan to move to the mainland or farther north, towards an area now known as the Chesapeake Bay. Though the discovery of an invisible message was exciting, the treasure hunt it led them down was less so. They did find some shards of pottery and a brass buckle that could have dated back to the English settlement, but as time wore on, it became clear that there was nothing to suggest that the colony as a whole had relocated to Site X. But across the river from Site X was Edenton, North Carolina, the same town where Lewis Hammond had discovered a highly unusual stone 70 years earlier. And on it might have been a message from John White's daughter, Eleanor Dare, explaining the final chapters of the lost Roanoke colony. Coming up, the secrets of the Dare Stones. Now back to the story. Roanoke enthusiast Brent Lane had been the proud owner of an original John White map for years. After he brought the map to be tested at the British Museum in London, their team of experts found something incredible. Invisible markings hinted that the colonists may have moved off of Roanoke and further inland after White's departure. And evidence discovered by a man named Lewis Hammond in 1937 supported it. Hammond and his wife were taking a road trip through the South when they pulled off Highway 17 into Edenton, North Carolina. The location was only 50 miles inland from Roanoke Island. Just off the highway, Hammond discovered a 21-pound stone with indecipherable carvings. He brought the stone to Emory University for further examination. The professors at Emory used flour to make the rough markings on the stone legible. Eventually, they were able to translate the message. According to David Levere's book, The Lost Rocks, they roughly translated to this. Ananias Dare and Virginia went to heaven, 1591. Any Englishman show this rock to John White, governor of Virginia. It appeared that Eleanor Dare, daughter of John White, was leaving a note in regards to her own family's fate, but the other side of the rock provided an even more detailed account. Since the translation is still a bit convoluted, we've simplified it a bit here for you. More or less, the inscription read, Father, soon after you left for England, we came here. There was only misery and war for two years. More than half died in these two years, mostly from sickness. A native with a ship came to us. Over a small period of time, 
The enemy became frightened of revenge and ran away. The professors at Emory appeared to have landed on a gold mine. It was the answer historians had been waiting for. This rock told the fate of the Roanoke colonists, and it seemed that the stone was confirming not one, but many of the theories historians had speculated. Attacks by the Spanish, disease, war, and it didn't end there. Dare wrote, Soon after the Native Americans said that the spirits were angry, they then murdered all but seven of us. My child and Ananias were also slain with much misery. They were buried four miles east of the river upon a small hill. The other names were written there on a rock. Put this there also. If a Native American shows this to you, we promised you would give them plenty of presents. It was signed E.W.D. The professors believed the stone was authentic. 350 years after the colony's disappearance, an adventurous Californian had literally just stumbled upon the answers. In May of 1938, the Emory professors published an article on their findings, and the news went public. One of the professors, Dr. Haywood Pierce, purchased the stone from Hammond for nearly $1,000, which would be over $18,000 today. He kept it at the Brenau University in Gainesville, Georgia. But he was eager to find the second stone that had been mentioned, the one with the names of the other settlers. So he posted a $500 cash reward to anyone who turned up results. In 1939, a man named Bill Eberhardt came forward to claim the prize— he had found another stone. But it wasn't just one. Eberhardt produced a total of 42 different Dare stones and collected over $2,000 for them, roughly $37,000 today. Except there was one major problem. While Eberhardt's stones told a convincing story of how the Roanokes planned to migrate south, they looked completely different than the original. Investigative reporter Boyden Sparks published a critique of the Dare Stones in 1941, and it placed scrutiny on Hammonds as well. There were allegedly problems with the stones' anachronistic language, inconsistencies with spelling, and historical accuracy. On top of this, there were now professional disagreements about the use of Eleanor's initials, EWD. Some scholars say initializing was not a standard way to sign a name in 16th century England. Thus, the stones had to be faked. But Sparks' biggest point of contention was with the person who found them. He found that Eberhardt was a professional stonecutter who had been caught making forgeries in the past. The stones were immediately discredited. Despite lack of evidence, even Hammond Stone was considered a fraud. All of the Dare Stones were then placed in the Brunau University basement, where they remained out of sight and out of mind. Until just recently. In 2016, the president of Brunau University, an acclaimed geologist, decided it was time to run more tests. They discovered that the first stone, the one Hammond found, was distinctly different than the rest. The coloring around the engravings implied that the markings had been weathered by time, long enough 
that they may actually date back to Eleanor Dare's lifetime. They also found its mineral composition indicated that it came from Virginia, not North Carolina, where Hammond discovered it. Which makes you wonder whether Virginia Dare was committed to lugging that 21-pound stone to share her story, or if it too might be fake. As of today, the stone cannot be officially categorized as a hoax. So let's assume for a second that those were Eleanor Dare's authentic words. Which brings us to our final possible theory, that the survivors moved up towards the Chesapeake Bay and may have resettled just outside of Jamestown. By the time the new colonists settled in Jamestown in 1607, they had been well-versed in the legend of Roanoke, and the citizens of Jamestown felt confident the Roanoke colonists were somewhere nearby. Stories began with Francis Nelson, a cartographer for the Jamestown settlement. He claimed that when he was out mapping the area in 1607, he was approached by four white men. These men claimed to be European colonists who were living amongst the local Iroquois tribe. Another colonist named George Perry wrote in his journal that he had seen a young Native American around the age of 10 who had hair a perfect yellow with reasonable white skin, which is a miracle. Then, only a few years later in 1612, the secretary of Jamestown, William Strachey, reported that he also saw a group of Englishmen. A girl, two boys, and four men who told them they were living with the local Eno tribe, but had been taken as slaves. Strachey also wrote that he spotted local natives living in two-story stone houses, a model that the English commonly used, which suggests former colonists had been there to influence it, years before the Jamestown settlers arrived. The secretary of Jamestown went on to document these encounters and create an assessment of what he believed had happened to the lost colony. His report suggested that the Roanoke colonists did, in fact, move north, but they were then exterminated by the Powhatan tribe. The problem with Strachey's accounts was that he never seemed to follow up with any of the potential Englishmen, nor was there any proof that they had come from the Roanoke colony specifically. They could have been a part of a small expedition, or they could have been privateers. Which is why this theory isn't exactly our strongest. There's just no way to confirm or deny anything. But that could change. With modern-day capabilities like DNA testing, confirming the assimilation theory is more possible now than ever. In 2007, the Lost Colony of Roanoke DNA Project was founded by genealogist Roberta Estes. She wanted to see if they could conclude what happened to the colonists by examining native descendants' DNA. Estes' work would allow her to compare the genetic similarities between a man whose family was known to live on Hatteras Island or even amongst the Chesapeans in the 16th century. She could then match those results to a database and see if there was anyone who also shared connections to the colonists' bloodline. As of now... Estes's project has yet to produce any conclusive evidence. The hope is that over time, archaeological digs in the Outer Banks might provide more skeletal remains for DNA comparison. 
If Estes can extract DNA off a confirmed Roanoke settler, it will be easy to compare with Native Americans living today. Perhaps then we can finally solve the mystery of the lost colonists. Or maybe there's an easier answer. In 2018, National Geographic journalist Andrew Lawler paid a visit to Marilyn Barry Morrison, the current chief of the Roanoke Hatteras tribe. It was a rainy spring morning. Morrison explained to Lawler that despite her mixed white and black heritage, she is Native American based on tradition. Morrison is a descendant of the local tribes near Roanoke, the same tribes that had close and often hostile relations with the Roanoke settlers. Lawler probed Morrison, hoping to find out more about her family history and whether she was told of any direct familial connection to the settlers. Morrison was happy to talk. The sweet-faced woman looked at Lawler and stated as a matter of fact, We killed the men and took the women and children. Lawler was gobsmacked. Had the centuries-long search for the truth been right here in this Virginia cottage all along? According to Mrs. Morrison, yes. Morrison pulled out a thick family album and showed photos to Lawler. The pictures documented Morrison's family history and proved that her ancestors' skin color ranged from ivory to ebony. But there was one blank space in the album that Lawler questioned. It held a caption, but no photo. The caption referred to a person. She was my great-great-grandmother. She was from Roanoke Island, Morrison told Lawler. Virginia Dare Bowser Tillet. So maybe the Roanoke colonists really had meant something by the words Croatoan after all. Morrison's story may be the best piece of evidence we have suggesting the colonists really did end up with the Croatoans peacefully or otherwise. And John White's missing granddaughter, Virginia Dare, survived long enough to hand her name down through the generations of Croatoans, including her alleged descendant, Virginia Tillet. Perhaps the answers to one of the greatest American mysteries lies in the stories passed down through the centuries. An ancestral secret, still well protected by their great-great-grandchildren today, who have proven that time does not tell all. Thanks again for tuning in to Unexplained Mysteries. We'll be back Thursday with a new episode. You can find all episodes of Unexplained Mysteries and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals like Unexplained Mysteries for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Unexplained Mysteries on Spotify, just open the app and type Unexplained Mysteries in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. We'll see you next time. Unexplained Mysteries was created by Max Cutler and is a Parcast Studios original. 
Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Michael Langsner, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Travis Clark. This episode of Unexplained Mysteries was written by Lori Gottlieb, with writing assistance by Maggie Admire, and stars Molly Brandenburg and Richard Rossner. <laughs> <laughs>